Hi, Char Beauchart here. Like me, you obviously listen to podcasts. You're learning, and that's a good thing, but are you also earning ASHA CEUs as you listen? Newsflash, SpeechTherapyPD.com is offering a new discounted annual podcast subscription, and you need to take advantage of it. SpeechTherapyPD.com is the leader in speech-language pathology podcasts. They produce over 16 new podcasts with great topics, including ethics, every month. Listen to Speech Uncensored, First Bite, SLP Now, as well as the Speech Link. Here's what you do. Go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, access the podcast subscription, and at checkout, enter my special discount code to get a full $20 off. Instead of $79 per year, you pay just $59 and listen to as many as you want. Here's the code. Are you ready? Speech 20. Speech 20. That's it. Choose from over 175 hours of on-demand pod courses and get practical information and your CEUs. <laughs> it's absolutely a no-brainer. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Char Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Patty Fisher is a consummate speech-language pathologist and a character with a gentle soul. I would love to be a fly on the wall during her therapy sessions. And as only Patty can share in her amazing wisdom, she gives us a peek today into her past that's influenced and shaped her therapy and into her teletherapy philosophy and techniques with kids and parents. So grab your pen and paper and get comfy. Here we go. Today, my guest is Patricia K. Fisher, MA, SLP, CCC, COM. She earned her bachelor and master's degrees from Bowling Green State University of Ohio, and she's never stopped learning. She holds 15 ACE awards from the American Speech Language Hearing Association for continuing excellence. Patty served as an adjunct faculty member at Miami University in Ohio and for the College of St. Rose in New York. She is a fellow and has received honors of the association in Ohio. Plus, she's a certified oral facial myologist through the IAOM, the International Association of Oral Facial Myology, and has published research through the Max Planck Institute in Germany. Most importantly, Patty has worked with children and adults with communication and swallowing disorders in a variety of settings, universities, hospitals, nursing homes, schools, and private practice, including teletherapy. She specializes in oral facial myology, phonology, voice, and language development. This is her second appearance on this podcast. Welcome back to the Speech Link, Patty. Well, thank you for having me come back. It's nice to be here. Great. Well, I'm excited. Okay. In full disclosure, Patty, you and I have talked and you've shared your educational and therapy beginnings with me. You know, it's always interesting to hear the journey of other SLPs, and I know that yours has been especially interesting. I think it would give us an insight into why you've experienced quite a bit of therapy success through the years, and I know that you're going to be sharing some of those activities later on with us. What was your early work experience like? You know, my first job was in a small community in Delphus, Ohio. And I really connect with the school therapist. And I really feel like that's my home in a lot of ways. 
I had um, three elementary schools, a junior high, and two high schools. And then in the evening, mm. they'd let me uh, work in two of the nursing homes. And I was an assistant over at our, our uh, hospital just to consult. Wow. Um, it was quite a, a job. And uh, it was an eye opener, too, mm-hmm. because really to be in that community was such a gift. You see, you had a lot to learn because there was every type of problem there that you could imagine. And things that I remember reading about when I was in school and thought, well, that's nice, but I'll never see it. Well, I saw it <laughs> probably within the first you know, year. I thought this is and I do remember thinking this. Um, we ought to probably have me pay them to let me be there. <laughs> and the second year we might break even and third year we could probably start a salary. <laughs> I did not realize how much I didn't know until I was there. But I really had a great start to be in that school and to learn. And I spent a lot of years in the schools. Those therapists work hard and they really, you know, you learn a lot and you have to. That's all there is to it. Yeah, I really think the reason it was also a learning experience is that I also still had such strong ties back to Bowling Green where I went to school. Mm. And I feel fortunate because I had really in my mind some of the best instructors a person could have. You know, they were specialists but they also knew general information. Mm-hmm. My instructors, especially the one that I relate to the most is Dr. Hyman, and he was a voice specialist, and he would come into class singing. <laughs> and yeah, boo, 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 and really low tones, and then a little bit of opera, but he taught us so much. And then Dr. Hood, who was a specialist in stuttering, um, Dr. Herman, who did research along with Dr. Kalstall. These were all men that had really learned and they were very good instructors and they gave us things that we could use. They were very much a, a functional therapist way before it became popular. And uh, they would also challenge you. Mm-hmm. And probably the most important thing I ever learned and probably has helped more than anything is they told me the easy way out is to take courses with the people that you agree with oh. because you'll always you know agree with them and, and that'd be easy yeah. but if you want to become good if you really want to be superior if you want to grow take courses from people that you don't necessarily agree with oh. or you don't understand interesting and it's really paid well because when I go to courses or listen to talk or anything. I have my standard that if I come away with one different idea, I have been successful and so has the speaker. And I am never disappointed. Mm -hmm. And that has helped because when I go in, I haven't got a preset idea of what's right or wrong. I'm just looking for something new and I'm never disappointed. That's a great attitude, great philosophy. Well, yeah, you know, I do think it has shaped that philosophy. You know, I think part of the reason things have gone better is that I think you respond, how you respond to the hand you're dealt makes the difference as to how you're going to be able to proceed. For example, right now, we're in the middle of 
a COVID crisis that happens. And, you know, the truth is we have to look at the situation and figure out how to survive and even thrive when we're faced with a challenge. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I can say for sure is things are going to change. And if you're going to be successful as a therapist in any situation, in the schools, in the hospitals, in the clinics, on telepractice, you have got to be prepared for change and kind of accept that things are changing and you have to too. It's not about the client changing to meet my needs. It's about my being able to understand what the therapy goals are and where I'm going and what we need to accomplish. And then I can tweak the material to fit that situation. Mm -hmm. If I don't learn to do that, you see, it's going to be flat and I have to make it exciting. It's my job to make it motivating and my job to help them get through the steps where it can be something they can accomplish. So my philosophy really is that I know things are going to change and I plan to be flexible enough and, uh, you know, enough up on top of the new information that I can use it and present it in a way that they can use it too. It has to become functional. Mm-hmm. Functional. Yes. Functional for them. Uh, from our side, we need to be prepared, be flexible, be confident in how we're going to share this with them to generate knowledge and use at their end. Okay, so you mentioned the other day that someone that you admire and that you read, William Connors, said that teletherapy is the genie out of the box. What does that mean? Yeah, um, he has written it as like the the genie's out of the bottle. And you know, I really, it caught my fancy and I think it is like that. We you know, over the years, I think all of us knew there was telepractice and there was face-to-face and all of us kind of lined up on whichever side what we were on. And, and then we knew those options were there, but the COVID experience has forced us forward in our thinking. Mm-hmm. And if Beanie is out of the box, we have, we were forced to take that leap to learn how to be a therapist and to make it work, whether it's online or face-to-face. And what skills do we have from our experience face-to-face in the room? Can we transfer to the online experience? And the thing that I think is most interesting about this is this change is never going to put us back where we were. It is a move forward. It's something that we will have to learn to incorporate and use. It's going to change us into having what I believe will be a hybrid kind of therapy Mm -hmm. where there will be a certain amount of hands-on face-to-face and the other part about telepractice or online learning. Now that we've done it, I think that we will continue to use it in some capacity. I'm not sure it will ever be completely one way or the other again. Hmm. That's going to be interesting, isn't it? And it's a learning curve. And I've also heard you use the phrase, the best SLP is the one who has made mistakes. Yeah, it is. That's definitely one of my big philosophies. In fact, 
I feel that the truth of the matter is, if you haven't experienced failure, you haven't been able to relook at things and become better. You have mm. to have a few mistakes. And the best therapists that I've ever seen operate are the ones who went in with a plan and found they had to change it. And at, in the process of making process of changing that, they do become therapists better therapists, stronger, and they understand their own philosophies better. They also understand the goals better of actual treatment. And it's really interesting to me because I think I learn more from every single client that I meet and and observing others. There was a time when I could observe and I just was watching things happen in front of me. I didn't mm-hmm. really understand what was happening. I wasn't a good observer. I don't know why. I was having a good time, but I just didn't get it. And then having a few failures of my own along the way, mm-hmm. I started to become more observant. I started to figure out what I had to change and what kind of adjustments I would have to make because I knew I was no good to anyone if I kept doing the same old thing that I'd always done that I knew in these situations necessarily wasn't going to work. So I needed to adjust and I've become better at adjusting and becoming a flexible um, spontaneously. I can do it, but it didn't, it isn't something that you're just born with. It isn't something that you just know how to do. You have to fail in order to know how to make those adjustments And then you become stronger and then you become able to read the situation and you can kind of prevent the the mistake. It's interesting because now I'm at comfort level where I really don't fear ever going into the therapy of any kind. I know that I will have the tools available to figure it out. And if I don't, I know how to buy the time so I can research it and get to a place where it's beneficial for everyone. Ooh, I like that. And that's a place that we all want to get to. And I think if somebody is extremely uh, confident in themselves, that's important. But we have to be confident in our clients, not just in us and, and how we are doing therapy, but we it has to flow over into confidence and competence of being able to analyze that client and to read them. And I just, oh, that is so very important. It's keeping our eye on the client and what they're doing and what they're not doing, and then being able to adjust according to what they need. Do you agree with that? I absolutely do. And I think it's really funny you bring this up in a way, because I remember when I was in the schools, which again, I just loved, there was always opportunity when I was in the therapy situation. And I think, oh, I wish I had that parent right here. I'd like to tell them (laughs) this or show them that. Mm -hmm. I bet there are other therapists out there that feel that, you know, and they they don't have someone. And that was sort of why I kind of went into some private practice. But going back to being in the schools, that was the thing that I always felt like I didn't have. Well, now being forced to take this leap into telepractice, The therapist and the therapy is happening and we're all in the same room. That parent is there. I have an opportunity to say what I wanted to say. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I think is a key is helping them become the best parent that they can and the best therapist at home they can. Mm -hmm. So I really use a lot of praise and 
feedback to them and a lot of training to them because I want them to know that they are the person really that makes a big difference in this whole process. Yes. They are key. Yes. Um, I don't think you can praise them too much because they have really, let's face it, an ongoing thankless job. Yes. It's never over. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, they, they're there and gosh, you know, they are an asset in every possible way. And it, especially with this telepractice, um, these parents have step, stepped up and they're right there in the room and they want to make it work. But it's, it's, I'm looking at telepractice and where we are right now as change that we can almost, um, I don't, we, we have to take advantage of, we have to use in a positive way. I could look at it in a negative way and say, oh, this is too hard. Or I can look at it as a positive opportunity. Mm -hmm. This is my opportunity. And that's what I've been doing. And I, it's interesting because the parents have stepped up too. And they are just really as, um, well, they're a little bit frustrated in the fact that this is new to them and they know they're on show and they know that, you know, every flaw they have is there for everyone to see. Um, and, and this is something I've found over the years. There was a time when I used to think that everyone would see me and be analyzing my flaws and figuring out, you know, what I said wrong and what I did is my hair wasn't so good. My makeup wasn't, I didn't have the right outfit on, you know, and I remember one day when I was going through the, the union at Bowling Green and it suddenly occurred to me, nobody really was looking. <laughs> nobody <laughs> really cared they were all sitting at their own table worrying about their makeup and their hair and their clothes they didn't have time to figure out whether I was you know put together or not yeah. and, you know it's funny because when true. that happened it was like a, a, a release and I have always carried that thought with me mm -hmm. because these parents when they come online I know that that's what they're thinking yeah. And so I try to use that experience in my head to say, you know, what little boo-boos I'd made and let them know that it was hard for me to get used to this and we can do it. And that I'm not paying attention to the slight mistakes they're making. I'm paying attention to the overall effort and the fact that they're showing up at all. Yeah. It's really interesting. That changes the tone. And and I think we can do this, but I think we have to be a little more aware of our parents to bring them in and, and do a little more training since we have that opportunity. Yeah. So you verbalize that to them? Yes. What do you say? I try to use terms that include them and give them feedback immediately. You know, on therapy, we say, and we, we have over the years used words like good, fine, thanks. That's meaningless because mm -hmm. it just goes into nowhere land. So I use right. words like, I noticed that you kind of have an experience with, you know, this and you may be a good cook. I wonder if we can use your skills to teach blah, blah, blah. Or I noticed when you were talking to John today, you said, and I tell him the things I noticed that were good. Mm -hmm. And then I will insert words like, I wonder if we, and then give them a suggestion for something they could try differently. Then they will come up with it too. If I use words like you did, and that's what I saw, it's very accusing. Yes. So changing that tone to I notice, 
or I wonder, or if we tried, you know, that kind of thing. It allows them the freedom to make a mistake and to say something they're afraid I'm going to judge them about. And, and, or, and I'm not, but they don't know that yet. And your online relationship is different than your person face-to-face relationship. Hmm. Face-to-face, they're right there. They're with you. They walk down the hall. Everybody got a drink, blah, blah, blah. But online, we're up and on the minute we turn on. And for some reason, people are paying attention because often it's a, a time you know, issue, or they feel like it's a financial issue. My minute started, you know, I've only got 30, get to work. So you you have to kind of build them into being able to discuss so they can see how they can improve and how they can be supportive. That's really, really good. Because a lot of times we talk about interacting with the kids, but we don't talk about interacting with the parent, which is so very important. I mean, what are some of the benefits of having that parent there? during teletherapy? Well, what's interesting about that is they start formulating and helping you figure out some carryover activities right away. Ah, good. They are fabulous at it. And they're thinking, and they will ask you, well, how can we use this? Or where does this belong? Which is probably the right question. I don't know why, but I thought they knew. I thought they already understood why this was important. Mm -hmm that we are, you know, using correct English or we're using a complete sentence or why do we have to be able to remember more in three things? To me, it seems logical that, you know, you have to know uh, how to do these things or in, in order to be functional. But they're asking the question so I can make it functional for them. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because then as soon as it has meaning and a place for it to belong, they will start using it and they want to co- and they want to come back and tell you the things they did and why it worked it's it's uh, very powerful definitely but how do we keep this relevant to the child and then pass it along to the parents and i know that you're going to be sharing some information about parent involvement and home environment therapy and so on the materials do you use materials uh, specific materials? Do you use pictures? Do you use stories? What do we use? You know, I mean, we could sit and chat, <laughs> you know, yeah. but you've got to have some visible, tangible, or, you know, something as a reference. Well, I'm glad you asked that because I probably am the most low-key therapist that walks. <laughs> um, and it, I don't use a lot of fancy materials. I do try to use the environment they're in. Um, because for me, this telepractice was really overnight. Now, I had set up my telepractice, so we were going to use it in case there was a snowstorm or people had been sick and they couldn't come in. So you could, it was just to fit in occasionally. Mm-hmm. So when COVID came along, I sort of had them online and familiar with their computers, but nothing very ongoing. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have chance to go out and buy and have a lot of materials and I didn't either. So we had to use what was there. And I remember one of the first sessions I did, and I'm just going to give you an example of it. It was a little boy and he is very fluency uh, involved and his stuttering is just starting to take a turn. And we were at the point in therapy where we need repetitive 
starting of words. And I had, I said, do you have a deck of cards there at your house? Yes. So they went and got it. And I said, okay, do you know all your cards? Mm, Some. So what we did is that we went through and I said, why don't you show me a card? And I started naming them. King of Hearts. Oh, there. That's the two of spades. And then we, I did it for a while just to show him and it gave him a pace. So then I would show him the card and he would name it. Mm-hmm. And I'd start implementing. Let's use our airflow there. And we're just going to say it and we can do this repetitively. Well, I know there's 52 cards there. And they did 52. I have my count then Mm -hmm. exactly how many easy starts we had. Mm -hmm. And then we had the deck of cards. Can we sort them into their families? Okay. This is the heart family. This is the, and I would teach Here's the spade. Here's this. Let's sort it. And then he would take his deck and put them in their families. As he did it, he would say it, but it, was so simple and so inexpensive, but it was very effective because the talking kept going. It was consistent. Mm, Brilliant. So, and that was a good, not only good for fluency, but it was good for um, sorting and for language and sequencing, Mm. but it also was confidence building for the parent because the parent sitting there and she says to me right afterwards, and this is when I I knew I'd hit it. She says, I can do that. I I think I can do that lesson. Mm, and I thought, you know, there you have something at home and it hit more than just one thing. And it helped, I think, open the door for her. I love it. So you have a type of universality to some of your materials and your activities. So it's not just one goal that you're accomplishing, but several. Yes. And one, like one of the things, um, another activity I used on that first day, um, we used to, I used to say in the room, in my therapy room, I had different things and I would put them different places and stuff and the kids would look for it. It was sort of a game. And I said, oh, you know, we can't play our game or maybe we can. Let's see. I have a boy here and it's a picture of a boy sitting in a chair. And I'd show him the picture and I'd say, I have a spider. Hmm. This spider is sneaky and I want him to be found, but we're going to have to follow him. So then I know you've probably heard the song. um, There's a spider on the floor on the floor. I start it by singing a little bit of that. There's a spider on the floor on the floor. There's a spider on the floor on the floor. Oh, I don't know what to do. There's a spider on the floor. Oh, there's a spider on the floor, on the floor. And then I proceed to put the spider on his shoe. I have a little tape and I have them tell me, oh my gosh, there's a spider on my shoe, on my shoe. Oh dear. There's a spider on my shoe, on my shoe. Well, I don't know what to do. There's a spider on my shoe. There's a spider on my shoe, on my shoe. Then you move up and you can put it on the knee and on the arm and on the stomach, on the shoulder, and then move it all the way back down. And pretty soon he jumps off and guess what? He's on the floor and he goes right out the door. (laughs) 
Now, that's not very expensive. And the parents watching this, I, I tell them, you have a picture. You can have the picture of the child or the picture of any person sitting in a chair, and you can move your spider around. But you're teaching body parts. You're teaching uh, prepositions. You're teaching prosody by that rhythm. You don't have to sing it. A lot of my parents don't sing, but they kind of enjoy the idea of something that's simple like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something anyone could do. And they, this is a confidence builder for them. It's one way of starting. And it's, of course, language rich. Um, another language rich kind of activity I might do is, you know, we've been working so hard. So often I will say to them at the end of a therapy session, boy, we've got to, we've got to work out a little bit. I need you to stand up and on line, you know, they can, they're in their room, they can stand up Mm -hmm. and we can do things like shake our hands. Mm -hmm. And I have a song that I sing with it, but you know, they can shake their hands or they can tap their shoulders or they can cover their face or tickle their ribs or touch their sides or rub their back or wave their arms or clap their hands. And boy, they love that because at first I'm giving them ideas and then pretty soon they're saying, oh, I can wiggle my nose. (laughs) I can pull on my ears. But it's a good way of us ending because it gives a lot of activity. There again, you don't have to have much material. You don't have to worry too much about buying something. It's right there. It's with you all the time. Yeah. And it's repetitive. You're using movement. Mm -hmm. In addition to practicing the verbs, something that they're doing and feeling and experiencing, you could even establish a, a ritual or a routine that you do, I would think. And so that you're enabling the practice. And I'm even going to say perhaps a little drill, but I know that there is kind of a distinction between the two, between practice and drill. Yes. I honestly think somehow early in my therapy days, it was more popular to do drill on everything. Mm -hmm. And drill does fill a 30-minute session nicely. Mm -hmm. You can drill words. You can drill concepts. You can drill, you know, pictures. And it fills. But I always felt that left it not useful. And it was flat therapy. So the difference between practice and drill is a major issue for me. Most of us can do drill. And most parents will do drill, Mm -hmm. but practice means functionality. And that's where you are doing it and putting it somewhere for a function. And I think in my mind, some of the arguments we have in therapy is to what technique the real issue is functionality. Is it useful? Can we, is there a place to put it? Because learning something just for the sake of learning it is not really very useful at all. For example, do you remember the periodic chart by heart? I I don't. No. (laughs) I remember trying to learn and drilling, but no, it didn't stick. Well, you know, and I remember it and putting it down on a test and thinking, I'm done with that. Well, yeah, 
And it had no use because I didn't become a chemist and I rarely refer to it. It's not that it wasn't a nice exercise for me, but it wasn't functional. And that's therapy. I always try to make it have some kind of functionality. And, you know, you can do that with so many things. Um, You can just say mealtime. Everybody has it. You know, we're going to be at the table. You're setting up the meal and they have at their table their plate, their silverware, their cup, those kinds of things. If you wanted to practice an activity that would involve language, you might have them take a look at what's there, close their eyes, take something away and say, what's missing? See if they can remember. See if they had that concept. That's one thing. Then they could do it. There's another way. What if I were practicing practicing sounds? I could put their speech sounds, uh, one card under a plate and one card under the napkin and one card under their cup. And they could, at the end of their meal, find what the surprise word is under each of those things. And those will be the three things that they're going to concentrate on that day if it's sound-based. This could be functional it would be useful. It doesn't all have to be language-based. What I try to do, and I think it, I learned this because of way back when, when I had all those seven schools driving everywhere, I couldn't carry enough materials with me right. in my car. I had 99 kids on the caseload and, you know, all these kids waiting. I couldn't carry it. So I had to make materials that were versatile and that would allow to be used in more than one thing. So I could use the same setup and material for voice as I'd used for language, or I could still use that for the phonological, but you had to have some, you had to know what your goals were. So in the, in the classroom that you have in the home, you have to know where your materials are there and what do they have? Well, they have that, they have a kitchen. So that's one way of using it. Um, I'm thinking another chunking activity that I use, I will often, I want them to put units together and I'll say, let's just go to your living room. And in your living room, there are certain things available to you. And I think you have a chair, a sofa, and maybe a table. And the kids will look around. Yes, I do. And a mom will show them. You have it right there. I said, now I'd like you to find anything else that is like that, that is in your living room. I'm just asking them to start to build a group mm-hmm. and chunk it together. Then I will say, all right, now we've got a lot of things here in this room. Those belong in the furniture category. And that's one chunk. But I'm thinking of something And it's a category of things that give me light. Do you have anything in your house that gives you light? Well, the parent will help then. There's a lamp, there's a flashlight, there's a candle. And they start. So, all right, we have two groups. So they've learned to group. And then I will say, you know, different kinds of groups. Do you have things that we could group in the kitchen? Things that belong and they, the parent will start to get in on this. This is a game. Mm-hmm. And it's right there. It's right in their home. And that can be their homework assignment. Mm-hmm. And they love it because they come back to try to say, I bet you never thought of. And, of course, I'm always surprised. Whatever they give me. Um, 
I tell them, gee, I never thought of that, or I hadn't thought of it that way. And I allow them to present their success and reward them for that. It really helps. So that's one language kind of thing and getting them into grouping. Another way I can use that same environment is I can say, okay, I'm thinking of a room in your house. I'm going to paint a picture for you, and I want you to tell me what room we're in. In this room, there is a a couch, and there's a chair, and there's uh, a table, and then they immediately know what room we're in. I said, oh, great. You found the room I'm in. Now, I want you to tell me what room you're in. And then they have to list the grouping and I have to figure out where they're at. Um, It creates opportunity and it teaches parents how they can use everyday things. And they don't have to buy anything, but that's one way of using language that's right there. Right. You know, I'm wondering, perhaps for even older kids, you could take the couch and the chair and you could do features and compare and contrast, you know, that kind of thing, right? Right. And you could think of ways to expand vocabulary sure. with this because you could say, okay, you, you know, you do have a couch there, but is there another name for that? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that would be, a, oh yeah, sofa. That's another thing we call it. Um, is there anything that goes above or below the sofa? Is there something, wait a minute, what's beside your sofa? What's in the middle of your sofa? So you can get your position words. And then I also have the parent hide things around so that we can do a a scavenger hunt right there in their home situation. But it's very controlled Mm -hmm. because I want to know how many objects I have because I use that. So we have a beginning and ending point so they don't continue. Uh, Um, You've got to think ahead to have control of your environment and the parents working with you a little bit on this. So I will, I make it very limited. Like there's only five things we're looking for. Um, and it's much more accurate too than I know when, when we can change activities. Good. Okay. So that's chunking, categorizing, even just naming and labeling. And if I were at home and, and I had, let's say a voice client who wanted to work on the voice things. And of course that's so hard because parents are having, they don't always get the idea, the problem. They just know it sounds bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might start by going back to Mother Goose, of course, and telling the story about the three bears. And I will have some pictures of this and we'll, and I'll have the parent that I'll, I'll send it to them. So they have the pictures of the papa bear, the mama bear and the baby bear. And I will explain the different voices in those animals and then the way they say the same thing with those three different voices and then Mm -hmm. i will go further to have and papa bear in his very mean angry voice and i'll show a rough voice you can get the characteristics of this better but this of course three bears is, is a great language activity too so you, you're doing more than one thing with that. Yeah. Um, another one that I love to do, I love using the three little pigs. And it's a great language experience for them. And I'll say, we are going to make pigs. And we have three circles. Mom, will you help us? We need a big circle. We need a medium-sized circle and a baby circle. Okay. And 
it can be of any paper you want. And I tell them that the medium sized circle should be about the size of a quarter. And the small circle should be about the size of a nickel. And the big circle should be a size of just slightly bigger than a dollar, uh, a silver dollar. So they have a concept of where I'm starting. Mm -hmm. And then I'll say, let's take the small circle and we'll put it on top of the medium-sized circle. Let's tape it there. So I'm taping the small circle on top of the medium-sized circle. Now I'm taping the medium-sized circle on top of the big circle. So you can see all the circles. Right. Now I'm going to put on that small circle two dots and a smile. And on the medium circle, I'm going to show little squares at the top, which are ears. And on the big circle, I'm going to have, oh, a little bit of a curly tail, which I add usually with a little string. And then I put four little stubs coming out the bottom, and there's a pig. Okay. So now I have a pig. And, but here, as you're building this, it can be so simple. Now you have one pig, but, oh, wait, this story is about how many pigs? Three. How many more do we need to make? Oh, two. Can you do it? You do it. Show me. And then they have to talk it through and they have to figure it out. Mm. But those supplies are very simple. You have already introduced the story. They know the story of the three pigs. Right. So you have that. And then you can go further and they can have their pigs go to, if I often will draw pig pictures of the houses and they can put their pigs in it. They can play with it. It becomes a toy for them. It becomes something within their home. If they can't play with it and share it with someone else, it's not as much fun. So I try to make it as much fun. I want carryover. And I, and often my little pigs, once they make them, we have a scavenger hunt to find them. Mom will put around the house and um, try. You have to find where piggy one, piggy two, and piggy three went. Mm -hmm. We name them sometimes. Um, so, so there is, isn't just the activity. It's the experience and the movement with it. Yes. Um, and I think that that's helpful. And another thing that you can do along with this, and I think it's a very important one. I like in my face-to-face -face therapy, I almost always have a little box on my desk or where we're working and they don't know what's in it. Mm -hmm. And it's always been a game that if they can guess, you know, and make their good questions, you know, if they get it, you know, they get to open the box or whatever. So at any rate, they are learning to do that. Well, now I might still have my box there, but a good friend of mine that's out in California, she does it in a different way. She just puts something in an envelope and tapes it on the back of her chair so they can see it hmm. and they notice it. And then they start asking what's in there and then they, she does a whole unit on question asking. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was brilliant. What a brilliant, I always had this great old, you know, it's not a great big box, but it's a box. And I had my things in there, mm -hmm. but I think both of those things would work to, these are things you can do in your home and just, and even take a picture and put it in there and they have to guess which picture it was, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. You can make it so fun. Yeah. These are simple things that the parent can do. 
And I'm sure that they would do them and then also expand on that activity. But also, I know that as a person doing teletherapy, we're always concerned about the kid turning away or getting tired of the activity or, you know, behaviors, you know, show up that we don't want. But you're giving us things that they can use, you know, manipulatives, things that's in their environment where they can move, that's intriguing and interesting to maintain their attention. Yes. I really think that's the key. And and the parent will come up with, once you start this, they'll start coming up with ideas. Um, I'm going to tell you one quick one that I just, I had forgotten I'd used. I just think it's so much fun. I would have them, while we're talking the circles, I would have them use the bigger circles and we might put words on it or concepts on it, whatever it is we were doing. And I remember putting them on, I'd have the parent put them on the um, cookie sheet and allow them to use their spatula to turn them over and find out what that word was. And it was just one way yeah. to get them to go through it. And, that, and of course, it usually would lead to making cookies. And really, this is something parents like and the kids love. So I just, it was one of those things that I think if you can lead it into something that would be fun in their daily lives, you're really on good, good grounds. So I just thought that one was kind of, it had forgotten about that, but it made me think about when you were talking. Oh, I love it. Now, the last thing that I'd like to talk about, and I know that people are wondering about is how do you keep data on all of this? Um, what are your secrets? <laughs> well, I, I am going to tell you my secrets. I, I'm not manually dexterous. I can't do certain things at the same time. When I'm in therapy, I'm working with what I'm working with, and I can't be charting very easily at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's real hard for me. It's always been hard for me. In fact, you remember when we did clickers, I could never manage the clickers. So what I do, yeah, I know yeah. it was, it was yeah, terrible that. to watch. Sure. And, and I, I had friends who would tell me they could handle four and I could barely click one. So I had to come up with a different way. And what for me, what works is I know what my end total is. I do everything in like tens or fives. So if I'm working on anything, I'm working on 10 trials at a time. And what I do is I count only the error. So I know what my percentage is when I'm through because I've counted, there's been four errors. Okay, that's where I'm at. This is my percentage out of 10. So I know where I am when I'm done. And my data is pretty accurate, but everybody goes the other way. And I know it's easier for them. So when I say this, you're, you're probably thinking, well, that you know sounds clumsy. But it's always worked for me. Um, because I know that I have, let's say, 10 words I'm going to be working on, and I know there's going to be 10 um, trials for initial sounds. I know that uh, they missed four. I've got a 60% right now. I know what it is. I'm just counting that error. Okay, so let's let's talk about some of the activities that you've done and apply the data keeping. So if you're working on, let's say, the you, you mentioned the furniture in the living room. So that would be labeling and naming, and then you're doing the features, and maybe you're doing some prepositions and so on. Do you write the things down prior, you know, the words down prior to doing the task so that you can go back and say, ah, they knew on, they knew under, they knew beside, you know, they knew cushions, they knew the synonyms for sofa and, and you know, and all of that. 
do you kind of write that down and you have a sense of it so that you can observe what they do and how they do it? Right, I do, but almost in the opposite way you expect because I write it down, but I only record the error. And I know that I'm going to give whatever it is. We're going to do five trials. I know how many times I'm going to be doing that. So I know how many times that that was attempted. I know that sounds weird, but that's how I do it. Because I know going in that I'm going to do five trials for groups. Okay. And then I'm marking off and I only had one failed group. So I know what my percentage is. Or if I know I'm going to do it two times through, I have 10 trials. So I I stay with basic numbers like that. I try not to get into anything else that's too, it's too bulky for me. Um, I just don't. And I write soap notes and have always written soap mm-hmm. notes. So I write what my time is and whether it's a group. I write my objectives, which is, you know, the concept words or vocabulary words or or phonology, whatever it is that is my target. And then my analysis is like what I observe and the the data. And I always have a percentage. And then my prescription is whether I continue on this or whether I'm going to adjust it. Okay. I bet there are school therapists that don't know what SOAP stands for. Like S is, I've always learned it is the subjective, like you, you put, you put uh, the time and the, um, whether it's group or individual, I, I, that's my setup scenario. And that's where the beginning, the O is for your objectives. The A is your analysis and the P is pre- prescription. Now I worked in the hospitals for a period of time, but I also worked in clinics and stuff. I, I'm sure it's not perfect the way I do it because I've adjusted it to schools and I've adjusted it to private practice, but it has always worked for me. And whenever my uh, notes have been reviewed by any um, insurance company or anyone, the one thing that comes back is they, they clearly know where I'm at and they can see that it's, that it's leading me to where I need to go. Mm -hmm. Because on top of that, before I even start writing, I have my treatment plan attached to it. I know what my bigger picture is and what my goals are. I write that when I do my diagnostic. Right. And I write and use that one page on the top of my notes. So I'm always referring back to it. And I, I might put for shortcut sake, um, goal three. And because I don't want to write it out again, it's there. Yeah. Well, and data keeping is for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's for the therapist so that we can determine if what we are doing is positively impacting that child. If it is not, then we have to adjust. If it is, then we keep doing it and expand on it. So, you know, I think data has to be useful and, you know, you just, you do it how, whatever way works, whatever works for you. It's not just an obligation that we have to do, but there's a reason for keeping that data. And the reason is to adjust our therapy. Right. And to make it better and to grow. I also will have in there, that is where you'll find my indication where I think I really didn't hit the mark. And I have a little code to myself that this is something that needs to be changed. (laughs) And I mark, I mark it there. So I know what to go back to. Now my preparation used to take, and it used to be that every Saturday from eight o'clock in the morning to five, I was organized my notes for the week and my plans. 
I did that for many, many, many years. Wow. But I noticed over the time I got so much better at it. It's not like that anymore. Good. Because I do, I do know what I'm doing. It does. See, a lot of people think you're either born with it or not. I wasn't. Um, and I will tell you the truth. And I was thinking about this this morning. Um, my mother tried so hard to find something I'd be good at. Bless her heart. She had a way of making everyone feeling good about themselves. She could find the good in anything. She could look at anything and make it good for all of us. And all my sisters and brothers and everything, they all they were good in music or they were good in, you know, sports or they were good in this. And bless my mom's heart. She would have me, I would go to <laughs> gymnastics for a while and we tried tap and ballet and we tried swimming you know, whatever it was she could right. come up with. Right. And I can, I actually, you know, and I would stay at all these different things and I had a lot of experience with it. I can't say I was very, I didn't excel at any of them. Um, but I remember one particularly bad experience and it was piano. Now my older sister took it for eight years, my younger three, and they both can play anything you put in front of them. My mother played by ear. I took three lessons and my mother begged me to quit. Oh, no. So that tells you a little bit about my talent there. But the, the point is that she kept at it until we found something. And I remember one day she said, you know what, honey, you don't need an instrument. You're carrying yours. You can sing. Mm, and I could tell we can all pick up on that. You're a good singer. So, but my point is, all parents need to be able to to try and know that it's okay when they go this way or that way and it didn't work, there's something else. And, you know, it can be done in a positive way. I don't have any bad, I don't feel badly about not being that good at anything. I just felt like, oh, so now we're doing ballet. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> here we go. Well, and it's it's the experience of it too. Right. You had the experience. I mean, you weren't going to become you know, a ballerina, but you were well-rounded right. and you are well-rounded. And I can see how that has really moved you into doing therapy because your therapy is very well-rounded, but it's very grounded and it's very simple and it's very functional and it's very relevant. Yeah. And I just, I'm, I'm intrigued by your wisdom that you've garnered along the way. And I'm so, so glad that you were willing to share it with us, girl. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I hope that anyone who is thinking about therapy and is struggling, either give me a call or give you a call. You know, I think actually what we need is to kind of mentor each other. Yes. And I th it would be a real help to all because we are all going through the change, you know, this change yes. together. And I'd like to see us all succeed. I'd really like us not only to survive this, I'd like to see us thrive in this period of change. Yes. And I think we know change is coming. So let's, you know, let's look at it in a positive way. Yes. Well, we did here for 50 minutes. It was excellent. And it's very, very functional and very useful. So thank you so much, Patty. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Speech Link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.